my goodness, we've got guests. You know what that means. It's another Masterclass episode on Studio Class. Hello, divas. I am thrilled to welcome soprano and pedagogue Liz Purse to this Masterclass episode of Studio Class. I've known Liz as a colleague and friend for many years now, and she constantly inspires me with her creative pursuits. As a performer, her uniquely colorful and versatile voice has led to performances of wide-ranging works, from medieval to modern, and though she's known as a specialist in contemporary vocal rep, she also deeply enjoys what she calls, quote, a well-aged song, end quote. <laughs> Liz is passionate about commissioning and performing works for singer at the piano. She's also one-fourth of Quince Ensemble, a treble voice quartet dedicated to charting bold new directions in vocal chamber music. And Liz also teaches voice at Winona State University and the University of Wisconsin La Crosse. She also maintains a private studio based currently online only in Minnesota. So you can find out more about her at lizpurse.com, but please listen to this whole episode first because you're gonna love it. Yay! Liz, welcome! I am so, so happy that you are doing a Masterclass episode with me for Studio Class. Would you- Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, would you tell us a little bit about yourself to kind of get us kicked off here? Yeah, so I am Liz Purse. Um, I am a vocalist based in rural Minnesota, um, and I sing on my own. I play piano sometimes, um, and I work with both Quince Ensemble and Damselfly Trio based yeah. in the United States and Switzerland. So. Yeah, yeah. Can you tell me about the, the makeup of, of those ensembles? Like, what's your instrumentation for those? Yeah, so for Quince, we started out as a treble quartet, so four singers based in Bowling Green, Ohio, and we were all grad students together um, at Bowling Green State University. <laughs> Go Falcons! Um, <laughs> And yeah, so it's a treble quartet, including Amanda DeBoer Bartlett, Carrie Hanneman Shaw, Kaylee Butcher, and me. Um, and we've been for most of the last 10 or 11 years, a long distance ensemble. So this whole last year has been like, we know what we're doing. Yeah. <laughs> um, You're like, let us share the template. <laughs> yeah. And like, and speaking of long distance ensembles, um, Damselfly Trio is a flute, harp, and voice ensemble with Lindsay Buffington harpist and Chelsea Zucra flautist flutist whatever they use this day yeah flautist and um they're <laughs> both of them are based um in Switzerland um I met Chelsea at a summer festival at Soundscape yeah. uh, a number of years ago and we were sort of housemates there and I I told her recently because I hadn't noticed it there's a poster from that summer festival in my office here yeah. and I found her signature on it it was one of those like souvenirs where everyone signs each other's poster yeah and under her signature it just says you are mine exclamation point <laughs> i didn't see that till recently like long after we started working as a trio oh. um, <laughs> so like okay this was this was apparently destined to be written in the stars <laughs> yes. or at least in like gold sharpie on a poster right right so. right <laughs> well definitely i love I love both of those are are quite long distance ensembles and I I love that you mentioned where you live could you tell tell us a little bit more about kind of how you ended up in rural Minnesota yeah. and and your path about just 
I, I think it's interesting and it's one of the things that I find interesting. So if you could talk a little bit about your geographic locations from time to time as a, as a professional musician. Yeah. So I, you know, truncated long story, the TLDR is I went to school in Indiana for a long time, met my partner, Gary there. Um, we moved with, uh, well, he moved to Texas and I moved to Bowling Green for grad school. Long distance is super fun. Uh, but, <laughs> she uh, says with a face. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, which, but we, we did it because we both got, we got scholarship in different places and that's yeah. a ch- hard choice you make, but our, you know, we, he had been in the AmeriCorps when we were first dating. So we were wow, used to yeah. it. And for mm-hmm. us that fortunately for our relationship, that makes sense. And mm-hmm. we're okay spending long times apart. Um, but then from Bowling Green, we moved to Kansas City for a couple of years for a job for a job he had. And I mm-hmm. ended up working with a bunch of the, bunch of the Kansas City um, new music organizations, which there is a lot of cool art in Kansas. City. Right. Isn't that oh amazing? Yeah. I don't think they, they get enough credit like for having just the, the art scene and, and music and things like that that they do. Yeah, between them and, you know, through Amanda learning more about the art scene in Omaha, it's like, mm-hmm. if I hear one more person say the word flyover state, yeah. there may be like fists thrown for it. You're catching hands. <laughs> like, yeah, exactly. Um, but yeah, and then from Kansas City, uh, my partner ended up getting a job in, uh, in La Crosse, Wisconsin, yeah. which is my hometown. Uh, mm-hmm. And, you know, he'd asked before he interviewed, like, do you feel weird about moving to your hometown? Mm-hmm. And I'm like, no, I actually really like my parents. Um, <laughs> and it's a beautiful area of the country. Like yeah. we live just west of the Mississippi river. We, we ended up moving to Minnesota for a couple of reasons, but mm-hmm. um, I, I now work in between La Crosse, Wisconsin and Winona, Minnesota. And mm-hmm. we live halfway between the two in the unincorporated village of Pickwick, <laughs> which yes. um, is centered around this historic, like a grain mill yeah. that still runs. I can see it out the window here. Um, <laughs> and it's, it's a mill museum now because mm-hmm. there are not a lot of these historic buildings, like, you know, six stories of wooden architecture wow. and gears in this big stone edifice. That's and incredible. The water wheel still works and will run wow. the mill. Wow. They don't do wow. much milling anymore. But <laughs> so it's run more as a sort of like, look at what it does yeah uh, <laughs> an education piece yeah but so yeah I live here um and pre-pandemic it was both wonderful to live in a nice quiet space mm-hmm. um it kind of having a home base that was not very I don't know the word bustly I guess mm-hmm. um and the, the the convenience is there's an airport in lacrosse yeah. That is a shuttle to Chicago, Minneapolis, and now Detroit. So mm-hmm. it's a very convenient place to fly. And the TSA doesn't open until 45 minutes before your flight because there's only the one flight <laughs> leaving at any given hour. So right? it's very convenient. Right. <laughs> like I, I bought TSA pre when I was in Kansas City. And then, then we moved it. I was like, well, I guess I don't need this anymore. <laughs> You're like, this is just for those return flights now at this point. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Well, I I love that you're willing to talk about that because, you know, you and I have known each other. And when I was living in the Midwest and bumped Mm -hmm. into each other, a lot of those things where we both have a deep love of of living in the Midwest, living in having non-bustly spaces to call our home spaces sometimes. Mm -hmm. Right. And um, and. 
I think that you would agree with me that maybe as younger singers, there was a time where if you, if you considered not living in a hub that, you know, that felt like career suicide or something like that, very dramatic. Right. And I wonder if you had any fears about that um, or, or just what, what you thought about that process of kind of picking where you were going to be based. Well, the, yeah, it's it's kind of the thing of like I I think I always knew that I didn't want to live in New York. That was mm-hmm. sort of, you know, through undergrad and grad school, I was at a big I was at Indiana University, which yeah. is a big opera school, and it's one of the few Midwestern towns that all of the young artist programs or these apprenticeship right. opera programs that they would actually go to to audition because there are so many people in Bloomington that are opera singers that mm-hmm. want these jobs. Mm-hmm. Um so it was kind of its own hub and I didn't move there to be an opera singer. I moved there to be, to, to be a clarinetist. Yeah. And then through a couple different issues found out that was not clearly not meant for me. I'm not supposed to be a clarinetist. <laughs> um, for, and I, I still love the instrument. I'm well, I was going to say, I have seen you play it in your, <laughs> in your like, so, so it's there somewhere right. in your life. <laughs> right. Like I'm trying to join the community band again this year, but yeah. being a professional orchestral musician was not yeah. something that I knew I was going to do. Mm-hmm. And so I'm in this place with all of these people and all of this opera, 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 and everyone saying, you know, sending that message to their friends or making the announcement on Facebook when that mm-hmm. started becoming a thing of, thrilled to announce that I'm fulfilling my dream of moving to New York. And I'm like, that is not my dream. That's not my dream. I don't yeah. know why I, 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 maybe I do, maybe it's floor space related. I don't know. <laughs> uh, it's not for it's, it was like, it's a great place to visit. Yeah. Um, and there are times that I've thought about like, you know, I, since I'm not there, I'm not building a massive network quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, and mm-hmm. there are times that I'm, I think that might have, possibly affected some of you know what my network looks like now because there are a lot of people who don't know I exist because I never did one of the big New York festivals Mm. like Bang on a Can or Mm -hmm. you know a Tanglewood Mm -hmm. I and I've always been in midwestern schools between Indiana and then Bowling Green so Mm -hmm. I've never spent significant time on a coast becoming one with those scenes I've never really been part of a specific scene other than with Quince when we were based in Chicago, we performed there a lot. So Chicago is kind of the nearest big city scene that I'm part of. Yeah, definitely. And even then, not that many times per year. Yeah. So, Well, and, and I think I, you bring yeah. up a beautiful point about when you're in relationship with, with you know, collaborate, your collaborators, that you are also part of their networks. And, mm-hmm. and that can be very positive. I know that you've made choices, you know, that Quince, because you know, Amanda's in Omaha and Carrie is is based primarily in the in the Twin Cities, mm-hmm. and then Kaylee was in the Midwest, but then also moved out to New York. That because you collaborate so frequently, you also have access to their networks, and right. And I think that's a very powerful thing. Yeah, and that's the thing is, I networks don't have to be geographically located anymore, mm-hmm. as we're finding mm-hmm. out through this this whole like everything's online now. Right. The idea of seeing has changed. Mm-hmm. Um, and mm-hmm. yeah, I, you know, I benefit a lot from my colleagues from their networks as well, mm-hmm. knowing more of the folks in Omaha through Amanda. Um, 
working with some of the Twin Cities organizations because of recommendations from Carrie um, mm-hmm. and doing the work I've done in New York with Kaylee. Yeah, yeah um, exactly. And so, vice versa, yeah. you know, they benefit from from all of the things that you're bringing to the table in your network. And, and like, that's, that's just the beauty of it. We're in yeah. these, we're in community with people, mm-hmm. for sure. So Liz, I... But as I just took, you know, this giant tangent to talk about geographic locations, I, I actually usually start the podcast by asking this question about what is an intention that you're keeping for yourself at the moment? And this actually came out of the fact that I, when I was teaching my voice studios, I would always ask my students to, to give me two intentions. So it really has this effect of kind of what, you know, just what is on your heart at the moment? What are you thinking about? Those kinds of things. So my dear, what is an intention that you're keeping for yourself these days? <laughs> so I've been thinking about this since, or you know, for a while, because it's not something I do a lot of conscious thinking about. I feel sometimes like I'm kind of a, I'm, I, it's the worst thing of like, I'm just kind of a jellyfish. Like I'll float along and <laughs> see what's, what's interesting or like what, what comes along to be like, Oh, that. Um, yeah. But I, thinking of it in terms of how I teach with my students, I really think the the concept of play mm. is really important to me. Yeah. Um, I, a lot of my students are under, or, you know, most of my students are undergrads in mm. a music school, which for most kids making that jump from high school is super overwhelming. Yeah. Because they're like, because of how academia is right now, they think, oh, I'm going to have to sing classical music now. Yeah. Yeah. Oh no. Oh no. Or I did that exactly once per year through high school in my like solo on ensemble or state festival. Yeah. Competition things. Uh And otherwise they're, that's not what they do. That's not Mm -hmm. what they know how to do. So they feel like, you know, the rug's been yanked out from under them. And I, I'm lucky to be at a couple of schools that I kind of have some leeway in terms of repertoire to address my students more from where they're coming from Mm, and especially this last spring semester where it's like it's semester three of covid teaching online (laughs) you're in my voice studio right now this is what this is where i am (laughs) usually don't curl my hair but you know (laughs) Um, but like the idea of play or it has been so valuable in terms of asking my students like what do you actually like doing like Mm -hmm. what do you actually sing how do you sing and there's sometimes where i'm like you do know what you're doing. You have a lot of skills. You're just, they feel like they have to dump them out of their brain for other kinds of singing. Yeah. Um, or people who, I, I find the concept of player like exploration, just yeah. kind of saying, okay, we're going to try this sound, mm-hmm. this sort of combination of actions, thinking of breath this way, thinking of our mouth shape this way, and just see what comes out. Yeah, <laughs> just see what uh, comes out. Instead of being like, I find it especially useful for something like the concept of how to sing high notes. Mm-hmm. Because mm-hmm. we, the way most people learn to do that is by kind of straining as much as they can to go higher and higher and higher to try and sing higher. And they think the effort is what does it. Mm, I'm going to pause for just a second. Not. They think that it's the effort that does it but it's generally not. I really think that that might be a key takeaway for just so many things in life. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's true. And so, you know, using things like 
it sounds really silly, but I use a lot of animal sounds mm-hmm. or like yeah. thing, vocalizations that people know how to do already. Like yeah. I can't tell you how many students have figured out how to sing high by going, turn my mic on. Woohoo! <laughs> yes. Because they can do that. And, <laughs> and then I play the pitch on the piano and I'm like, just do that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I love that you are helping them identify that like, here's a sound that you make all the time with a lot of ease. Mm-hmm. And then you you kind of showed them, hey, you did that. And then also hear how this is also the same thing, like just welcoming them into you connecting the musical knowledge to it, right? You're just mm-hmm. you're just drawing those parallels for them. And I love that that ease that you said, hey, you're already doing this. Like you already got this. Now let me just point out that you're here's the way to do that musically. <laughs> you know? <laughs> kind of like harnessing this power instead of trying to like shoehorn your voice into something it doesn't want to do. Yes. Um, yes. Which has opened, I don't know, it's opened up a lot of doors for some mm-hmm. of my singers in terms of trusting that their bodies can do the things they want them to. Yeah. And kind of reframing learning to sing. And I, I like the idea of learning to sing as instead of being like layering all of these techniques upon each other, which of course there's room and time for that as well, but it's kind of, learning how to make choices, like knowing what choices I have in my voice in terms Mm -hmm. of range, approach, et cetera, and how and when to apply them Mm -hmm. for different Mm -hmm. styles. Like we, it's my general, this is my tangent, um, my general sort of frustration with voice teaching, and I know it's changing. There's a lot of voice pedagogy that's kind of blossoming in vocology, the sort of marriage of science and voice pedagogy and experiential pedagogy as well that uses acoustics and science and kind of physically what's going on as part of training Mm -hmm. in addition to the experience of sometimes if you say this thing, this sound will, will result in Mm -hmm. in a positive way. Um, Ken Bozeman, I think talks about it really beautifully in his series of voice pedagogy texts, but, um, the, my main frustration with the academy right now is that for so long, it's been a style-based pedagogy. Mm. One exact style of singing. One style like of singing. <laughs> 18th yeah. to 19th century opera. Right, right. Which is valid, but it's not the only way to sing. And it's mm-hmm. not necessarily the best way to sing for everybody. There, mm-hmm. you know, there are all these things of, oh, well, classical technique will get you so far. And there are things that classical technique classical voice technique for Western art music shares with a lot of other things like, okay, how to breathe for singing. Mm -hmm. Even that there's, there's different things you might do depending on what you're singing. Mm -hmm. Um, But Mm -hmm. having more awareness of how our body breathes, how our body can expand and move and what we can do to facilitate that in breathing. That's useful. Yeah. But being like diaphragmatic abdominal breathing, meaning Something called low belly breathing, yeah, or that sort of yeah. like I'm filling like a water balloon um, <laughs> with air. It isn't necessary for everybody. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, right. Yeah. I love that because you're also, I think, meeting your students where they are with a lot of the, as you mentioned, you're meeting them with the with the understanding they already have about their bodies and making sound and then saying, let me expand your knowledge. You know, let me help be that person who says, here's some more information. Does this work for the sounds that you're wanting to make? And 
not showing up and saying, here are the only ways to make correct sound, you know? (laughs) And now some scales. (laughs) These, these only particular scales, no other scales. No, no, just. Although I will admit if I, sometimes we get so used to that major scale in vocal or like in vocalese. Yeah. You try to get somebody to sing a minor scale and it's like, my brain is broken. Right. (laughs) Why do I have to think about this? I, I, I swear I, one of, when I was teaching my private studio and I had a lot of high school students, one of the things that they were all uh, a bunch of them in a public school setting that part of the auditions for that, for those choirs at the school is that they had to sing major, minor, and chromatic scales. So they had this incentive to practice different scales, like, because they were like, I got, got to get in a show choir, man. And if I can't sing this, if I can't sing this minor scale, if I can't sing this chromatic scale, I can't, I can't be in the top show choir. And I was like, I'm with you. I'm so here for you. I got like, we can do this, but it was really so fascinating to be able to work on those. And then just kind of, I I didn't do a lot of like, and now we're doing this particular, this particular interval, but I would always infuse that. And I'd be like, here's this exercise that we're doing for these reasons. Also, it happens to be this interval, just in case you want to know that, (laughs) you know, (laughs) I just like, but I love that you're thinking about these different types of, you know, all of that, just giving them that information too, and helping them, them go, oh yeah, I do. Oh, I do know that that's, I do know that sound and I do create that sound. Now I've got the label for it or something right. like that, or a label for it, I suppose. So yeah. Liz, I, I want to ask, you know, I, there's just so many directions that I, with all of the things that you're saying that I want to go in and I'm going to, so I'm just picking this one at the moment, which is you had mentioned shoehorning your voice into something. And I was wondering if you had an experience in, in your past where you thought you needed to shoehorn your voice into something or fit someone else's ideals and talk about, you know, whether or not that was the case for you, finding the way that you wanted to make music. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that actually, (laughs) I don't know if I'd mentioned it in this interview, but it's definitely something that I've thought a lot about and it's, it's, it's a really weird thing to explain because it feels very vulnerable, but mm-hmm. um, it comes for this, it comes from, you know, when I started singing contemporary music, it was mostly like friends compositions. And mm-hmm. often it was something where the original performer had pulled out and they're like, Liz, you, know you <laughs> learn music quickly. Can you do this thing? That's in a week. <laughs> yeah, yeah, sure. So when I saw this poster and I was kind of like, you know, at, at Indiana, it's the sea of awesome singers. And unless you are a true, and I mean this in the positive sense of the word, a true, like unique snowflake of a voice, there is, there is not a lot of, uh, not a ton of opportunity unless you're making mm. it for yourself. So I learned that pretty early. Yeah. Um, but I, so I saw this application for a contemporary music degree and I was like, oh, well, you know, I don't do early music that well. That hasn't been my niche yet. I do a lot of these compositions for, maybe this is my niche. Mm-hmm. And I applied and got in, and I, I didn't know basically anything about contemporary <laughs> voice when I did that. Right. Um, and somehow they let me in the program at Bowling Green. And then I had Amanda who's like, 
here's all these things I don't sing because they're not right for my voice. Yeah. You should look at them. And yeah. one of them was the, was Messina's Harawi, which I performed many times since. And it like fits like a glove. And I love mm, that piece. I'm yeah. working on it. It's going to be the first thing I get to work on with a pianist after um, in another oh, week after like the two weeks wow. post vaccination thing and whenever we're so yes, yes. <laughs> we've been planning this for a year and my pianist loves Messiaen so it's okay um yeah. but, uh, anyway that it became clear to me very quickly that you know I'm considered a soprano but I am not considered a contemporary music soprano mm. by most people's definition, most apparently whatever the, the general trends are yeah. in contemporary Can you talk soprano. about that a little bit more? Yeah. So the, the simplest terminology I use is I'm not a dolphin. <laughs> um, there are, there, and it's, and I have colleagues that are, and they're amazing. These uh, because there's such a trend for finding the extremes mm -hmm. in voices in contemporary music in terms of fast and high coloratura, very, very high, very agile singing. Like these mm -hmm. people who are sort of like, if they were athletes, they would be floor gymnasts, right? Or maybe right, like right. Rhythmic gymnasts. They're doing these amazing. <laughs> or the cheerleading like flyers, like that. That kind. Right. Of, yeah. Yes. Um. Yeah, the people who are like just yeah. up in the air doing twirls and things. Um, meanwhile, I'm like, I, I feel like if I were in, if my voice were in an athlete, it'd be more like a rugby player. Like <laughs> I can, I can move sometimes, but I also then can't immediately stop. Yeah, <laughs> there's, there's a vocally. I mean, and it's it, it's something I recently kind of realized why it felt so vulnerable is that it's 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 partially feels like a body image thing mm, in that my voice yeah. is heavier. My voice is louder than some of my colleagues. I am also a bigger person than some of my colleagues. And it's definitely in terms of, you know, how we treat fat people in the United States is not very well mm -hmm, as second class mm -hmm. citizens as mm -hmm. um, lesser than in some ways. Yeah. And there were times that I would tie that into my voice oh, in terms of my voice yeah. isn't a lithe, slender, agile always perfectly graceful instrument right right and i i think i you know there were times where i pretty sure i caused myself some vocal damage trying to be that mm -hmm. because i'm trying to sing the things my friends have written that are sense of vibrato and piano and above mm. the staff and i'm just like <laughs> i hate everything about this um <laughs> You and I definitely are in a club over there where, you know, just getting asked to float, float high seas. And I'm like, uh, yeah, that's just not going to happen. Yeah. Like, do you want to hear what my piano high seas? No, please God. No. Um, and it's, and it's, it's even, you know, with the body image thing and the whole, like, well, you could just, you can know the more, if you just exercise more, if you just did more, you could do this. And that doesn't work for voices. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I, your vocal folds as part of your physical anatomy are just part of you. There mm -hmm. are things you can train to do better and, you know, work to figure out how to make these things work in your voice, but there are still limitations of how much vocal fold I have. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. even when I was younger, that was maybe sort of like the first indication is the first time I was scoped. The first time I visited a laryngologist and had a camera shoved through my nose yeah. to look at my vocal folds because that's what they do. Right. Um, uh, and then being like, are you sure you're a soprano? 
oh interesting and they're like well usually soprano i'm like yes why well you and i've had i've had audition panelists ask the same thing well when did you switch up Uh uh-huh uh-huh never i just uh, (laughs) i was just this (laughs) i've always been singing this mozart um but they they said you know your folds look a lot less translucent than Mm. most sopranos we see and this is you know people who work with singers so i'm like okay and i you know the very first one hit um dr dr phillips in bloomington who's the son of this like famous tuba player and so he's He's very well known in Bloomington, but he yeah. works with the whole opera department there. It's like, right. you know, you got some like Ferrari vocal folds in there. <laughs> like, oh, that's. Like, I definitely like want that on a like, wall or something. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna hold that in, my, in the little place in my heart forever. Yeah. yeah. Um, but it for me, the reality is, I don't have, I can't, I can only thin out my sound so much, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and it doesn't always feel like I've been able to sort. I. So in that way, my voice isn't as much of like popular in the fringy contemporary music realm I live in and my network is. Um, And so in the last couple of years, I've started in a couple of different ways, making peace with that by being like, you know what? It's okay if I have to sing mid-century 20th, like, you know, mid-century modern music like Messiaen and Babbitt because they were writing for sopranos who sang like I do. Yeah. For voices like that. And the case of the Messiaen, it requires a lot of power in your middle voice for a long time. Mm-hmm. And that's not something that's easy for everybody. And that's okay. It's not yep. meant for every voice to sing. Just like right. I'm probably never going to sing the music of Thomas Addis. Mm-hmm. Like, <laughs> Neither am I. That's for Cindy and Audrey yeah. Luna. That's not for me. Yeah. Yep. So, yeah. And, that's well, okay. and it doesn't, I love that you pointed out that it's, there is a difference between understanding what your instrument does and that some of it is training so that you're always training so that your instrument can do all of the things that you want it to do right. with that instrument. But that, that there is a difference. You can't just swap out to a different instrument. I don't suddenly right. become, you know, if I am a viola, I don't suddenly become, you know, a double bass at any point. Right. You know, it's, I am this instrument, you know. Right. You can't just strap an E string on it and yep. call it good. That yep. puts a lot of strain on the instrument. Yeah. That will not go well for you over time. Right. <laughs> but yeah. Hey there, divas. Real quick thing before we get back to the rest of this episode. Do you love studio class? You can support it now by joining the Sybaritic Camerata on Patreon. It's just at patreon.com slash mezzoenen, M-E-Z-Z-O-I-H-N-E-N. For $10 a month, you can join the listening circle where you get access to bonus episodes, you can make listener requests, and for $20 a month, you can become a Masterclass Scholar. Do you ever wish you could ask our Masterclass episode guests a question? Here's your chance. As a Masterclass Scholar, you're invited to the recording of the Masterclass episodes, and you get to ask your questions during an exclusive Q&A after the taping. So come on over, check it out, patreon.com slash mezzoenen. And now we're back to the episode. In terms of shoehorning, like, I've started commissioning things for my voice, for medium voice, mm-hmm. um, singing things that work for me. I mean, yeah, I it's... I think she meant it nicely, but one of my, my colleague Carrie once said, "Like sometimes you can be like a cannon with a face." <laughs> um, All these and, great one-liners, like you which, just collect like, them. 
you know, but I, I spent so much time feeling like more like the, you know, that it, the, from Fantasia, that hippo in a tutu during the dance of the hours sequence yeah. where I'm like trying to be delicate and graceful yeah. and in ways that it's like, just why, why would you do right. that? Right. right. When I could <laughs> sing Messia instead and just bellow yeah. melodically for an hour. Um, but again, I know it's not super popular and I have to balance the sort of like, well, what are people going to pay me to do mm-hmm. if anything? Mm-hmm. Or and what do I want to do? Yeah. Well, so. and would you say that it's been important to be able to communicate what your voice does really, really well to composers that you're working with? Then yeah, it's it's um, you know most of the commissioning I do is with Quince, and we mm-hmm. have a fairly extensive set of voice sheets now. Yeah, yeah. Um, that I I put together, and it's kind of like how we communicate to composers, and mm-hmm. we make it very clear that okay, technically I'm a soprano, but I'm, I sing one of the alto parts in this group. Kaylee and I's ranges are pretty interchangeable Mm -hmm. in certain ways. Mm -hmm. And if, you know, if blending is necessary, it's easier for me to blend with her than with Amanda and Carrie, who have also very similar voices in certain ways. Right, right. That's very cool. So I'm going to pivot just a little bit because we're talking about, we're talking about some technical things. and, And one of the things that I love to ask is, especially when I'm talking to vocalists and, and, and pedagogues, what is a technical skill that you love to teach? Yeah. I've been thinking about that for a while. Cause I'm like, I love helping people find weird sounds they can make with their face. Um, <laughs> and like uh, a couple weeks ago, again, one of my new students this semester, I asked him what, what he actually sings. He's like, well, I'm in a punk band. Yeah. And I was like, well, can you sing some of that? And so he sang some green day for me. Yeah. Which was, wonderful and he's like well i was like well you know are you happy with with how how that's going is there anything you'd wish to change yeah and he's like well i wish it could sound more of that sort of like screamy thing at the top um kind of have more of the that like the gritty whiny yeah yeah um, yeah i think it is voice and I, and I was like okay well what if we try you know can you can you make this sound like can you meow like a cat meow find mm-hmm. that sort of really forward sound that it doesn't it's not effortful yeah but it sounds really annoying <laughs> well not really annoying but it's it's turbulent it's a turbulent yes. sound yeah and it's something that when you put it into singing i for, gosh i forget the song he was doing now um oh this the this and if and if and if and if and if and then you get yeah. more of the into the sound without yeah. being like feeling strangled Yes. Um, yeah. But so that kind of thing. I also I love teaching. I I did like a ten minute long video for Quince's Patreon once on overtone singing. Yes. Um, please talk about overtone singing. Please, sure. <laughs> so for most people, it's more of like learning to listen to your voice, which I love doing with cl- my classical singing kids because overtones are super important in classical voice. Yeah. But we're at this kind of weird advantage as. American singers because that er sound is for a lot of folks yeah. kind of the basis of it. So I have them yeah. just, just find an er in a you know middle low. I use like C natural C sharp er, or you know sing like R. Yeah. And then have them move their lips just a little bit or move their tongue just a little bit very slowly to see like can you hear a difference between can you hear the sound quality changing. And then they start hearing like the. Yeah. 
Yeah. Be able to connect that to pitches. Yeah. And work to feed more energy into that. But for overtone singing, it seems really crucial to have people listen to themselves mm-hmm, to mm-hmm. play around with that. Yeah. And yeah. And they annoy their friends forever and ever. <laughs> I, I, I resonate with that. No. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I think that also ties back to what you were saying about, about play and I think overtone singing is one of those things when we talk about overtone singing, we're like, play around with it. <laughs> and like, mm-hmm. But we, we really do literally mean play around with creating these sounds. Like, yeah, put, put you, you're going to shape your mouth. You're going to practice shaping your lips. You're going to practice shaping your tongue and then play around and you can check with listening and you can check, you know, but the idea being explore, discover, discover yeah. what your, what your voice does. Yeah. There's so much of learning to sing that that is that exploration and discovery. Um, one of my favorite pedagogy books that I, I didn't get around to reading because it was really expensive until recently was Oren Brown's Discover Your Voice. Ooh, yeah. And it's still meant for classical singers, but mm-hmm. it, it approaches things in a way that's like, yes, start where your voice is instead of trying to shove sounds through it mm-hmm. that it's not ready for or isn't meant to do. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, I like that so much. I'm going to have to bring, bring that into my life. <laughs> so <laughs> one of the things that I like to talk about too is, you know, if we've, we've talked about like the, the technique, we've talked a lot about like exploring what your voice does. And one of the ways that we, we end up kind of exploring is through repertoire. And so you had mentioned, you know, Messiaen, you've mentioned Babbitt and other things, but I'm kind of wondering if there's anything on your rep wish list that you that you're thinking about or even uh something that might be farther in the future where you're like that someday (laughs) yeah i i've spent so much time i I, it's actually i'm trying to come up with stuff for that now because i'm been i have some opportunities at the schools i teach at to actually do some chamber music and i've Mm. spent so much time being like i need to put that on a back burner because it's not my reality now where I live Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. in terms of being pretty isolated and not part of an Academy in Kansas city, Um, getting to do some chamber music there, but not a ton. And then kind of getting to do more things in lacrosse, but still pretty isolated in certain ways and focusing so much of my attention on repertoire for my ensembles that I'm working with. Right. Um, And, you know, different commissions, et cetera. Um, But yeah, there it's it, so it's it's hard to come up with an an easy answer to that like there are things i'd love to do again yeah um i mean even outside the contemporary realm like i'd love to sing fearless to leader again I, yeah. there are all oh, of these oh liz i will you do that i'll show up <laughs> I, I will drive myself from louisiana to wherever you are <laughs> we, uh, someday i'd love to sing the strauss again um but yeah. i'd love to work with that's the thing. Like if I had unlimited funds and nobody was saying no, um, I would love to sing with orchestra more. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. that was a really wonderful experience to feel like I can, I I feel like supported. I feel like I can sing with my whole body. Um, I, I loved opera. I miss singing opera. It's been about it's been eight years since my last opera. <laughs> well, my last like classical opera. I've done contemporary opera with sure, Vince. sure. Um, but 
I think Mary Widow was my last traditional opera role like <laughs> eight or nine years ago now. Um, but there's these wonderful Sariaho pieces um, with orchestra mm-hmm. that I would love to do. Um, th- and yeah, there are all these, I mean, even the mid-century, like the Barber tone poems that mm-hmm. for voice. Oh, um, yeah. Think, or was it Britain that did Fedra? Um Yes. Yeah. Uh, I gotta remember that. I'll, I gotta um, get my rep together. I it's Barbara or Britain. I'm a terrible yeah. musician right now. Um, but yeah, find finding pieces like that. There or you know more of these songs that I've I I've, I've spent a lot of energy in the last couple of years finding repertoire that I can self accompany. Mm-hmm. Um, I love that project of yours. I've been, yeah. I, I play piano and sing, and so that's somewhat limited because I'm not the world's best pianist <laughs> but you are um, very good <laughs> <laughs> um and I've been commissioning songs for myself for for a while which has been a ton of fun and I have some I've had a lot of very generous composers write songs for me and it's it's kind of a, maybe another part of that play thing is yeah I I want I love these whimsical just mm-hmm. silly silly songs for some like um I mean some of them are serious our our mutual friend Anthony D'Onofrio wrote this really wonderful, like very moving piece about a penguin yes. in Antarctica. Yes. Um, and it is, it's very serious. And I've gotten a lot of great feedback on that one, but I also have like a song I'm about to premiere about capybara. Yeah. Or about the capybara or I'm commissioning some pigeon songs. I have a manatee out there and gold. I was going to say, and- is your self-accompanying project all kind of like a bestiary? Is it, is it all animals or does it, does it go beyond that thematically? I, it, I, Cause I know that you have that passion for these kind of animal themed pieces, but I wasn't sure if that was the whole thing. Um, it's, it's a good portion of the commissions I'm doing mm-hmm. um, have been that I, in when I commission, I'm finding even more, that's been the case with quince but i i love giving friends like people i trust when i'm commissioning i love giving saying like hey this is kind of what i'm here for but if something else strikes your fancy let's talk yeah yeah. um and i've had letting composers kind of it's not for me it doesn't feel like it doesn't feel right if it's a made to order Mm -hmm. sort of thing like I don't mm-hmm. want to go to Waffle House and yell I want this 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 and this and then that's exactly what they give me right um, I've there's been a lot more serendipity in saying yeah so here's the thing like um I you know uh Tony's music is amazing and often very serious and kind of austere in certain ways yeah and so I was like penguin in Antarctica does that strike your fancy he's like yeah, I think I can work with that. He's like, um, I can do something with that. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I don't, maybe it wouldn't have been the same thing if I'd been like, I need a song about a pigeon from yeah. him. Yeah, yeah. I feel and, you. You know, there's somebody else out there who wants to write that song. So, exactly. Or exactly. Um, <laughs> but yeah, or these like just really strange poems by the the Victorian era Rossetti family. So Christina yes. and Dante and the third brother, Dante, the painter, Christina, the poet. Um, I Dante love that the dis- third brother is like, and Peggy. I forget his name and I'm, I'm sorry. They're all dead. It's fine. Um, <laughs> but they, 
Dante adopted a wombat or not adopted, bought a wombat <laughs> mail order because that's what you did in Victorian era England, I guess. And of course it died because they, it didn't come oh, with an no. instruction manual. No. But it lived that it lived there in their yard for like two months. And like Christina has the wombibato poem. <laughs> it's in Italian even. I, that's the word for wombat. Wombibato. It's amazing. Right. And then Dante had his um I think maybe his was in praise of or one of them's like in praise of this wombat that he's very excited about and then yeah. the third poem is this requiem oh, <laughs> or like in memory after died and then I was like there are all these Victorian era poems like on the death of a pigeon aged 12 wow right? like so I could like I'd love to do a whole set of like sad like no I think that'd be too depressing like the sad animal Right. Death songs. Victorians. So extra. Right. So extra. <laughs> well, ending with that really like heartfelt and just like, I can't even really think about it without tearing up the one in the, that the end of the Ives 114 songs. Oh, yes. That's like on the death of their dog. No. How dare you do this? How dare you make me cry my own tears? <laughs> right. But I mean, the, so I, I'm open to other things, but it's this seems to be what what has brought composers the most delight yeah. to write about because they're like, I'd never thought about writing that way. Yeah. And it's that's, you know, one of the very first pieces I got for self-accompaniment was along those same lines uh, a number of years ago when Quince was in residence at University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee. Mm -hmm. um, at the time, the person running the, I think the Unruly Music Series there was... Um, uh, Chris Burns, mm -hmm. this amazing electronic artist, composer, musician, like all around great guy. And we we chatted a little bit about him, like, you know, I'm thinking of trying to commission some songs to play for myself. Mm. And he's like, and, and I was like, you know, is that something you'd ever be interested in? He's like, you know, I've never written songs before because the traditional texts just don't appeal. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, the sort of love song or emotion. He's a very warm and friendly person, but it's like, that's not my aesthetic. Yeah. And yeah. then like days later, I got a phone call or email being like, you know, I've always wanted in the back of my head, I had this cracked idea to set something from like a textbook. Yeah. Like some very dry mathematical language as song text. Yeah. I was like, yeah, go, go, go for that. <laughs> like run with it. <laughs> and yeah. now I have in, in my repertoire, I need to record it. That's hopefully a project I can get to this summer. Um, this like 30 minute long multi-movement piece called number opera. Nice. <laughs> it's like one movement is like the Fourier discrete theorem. Explained, <laughs> or a movement called, um, it's an, I think an imitation aria called Boyd's, but it's, um, the the mathematical equation used in uh, modeling flock behavior yeah 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 animation wow so this is super fun yeah <laughs> <laughs> and super weird this might be the only way that i want to engage with like mathematical information i'm like right can we do more of these i think i'll i'll show up for that i think i'm ready <laughs> <laughs> right <laughs> The well, instantaneous amplitude <laughs> of operas. I was, I think you've got a couple of things where you've got, you know, you're going to be doing some, some DePauw stuff uh, coming up. And then you're also, yeah. you also have, is it with Quince that you're doing a couple of opera things that, that are kind of on the horizon? Is that true? Um, yeah, there's, let's see. 
So over the summer, we're involved in the DePauw Summer Music Vocal Intensive. Um, cool. And that De- that's DePauw, which is in Greencastle, Indiana. Cool. Um, and so we're, we worked with them last year in a completely remote residency, and it was really, really oh. wonderful. They have some great, great students and great student composers there. So I'm excited to get to work more with singers. Yeah. Um, and then Quince late in sometime in late june quince has uh we're finally getting to premiere the music we were to perform for the music now series with chicago symphony Mm -hmm. um, featuring music by courtney bryan with members of the cso and then a premiere with our one of our favorite chicago folks dave remenick yeah um, as well as music by um new york-based composer jill de lyons yeah Um, wow we have a we have Another opera project on the horizon. I don't know if it's been announced yet, mm-hmm. but um, that'll be some microtonal excellence um, with a really great composer with um, an ensemble we love based in Pittsburgh. So that's fabulous. I, that's that was something postponed. Yeah. Um, so we're looking forward to that in the next couple of seasons as well. Oh, I love that. What while I have you, can you talk a little bit more? I think. I might be mistaken, but I, I thought I remembered that you had perfect pitch, but I still think, could you talk a little bit about getting more comfortable with singing microtonal music? Because I know that that can feel a little intimidating if if it's something where you're like, well, I want to sing more, I want to sing new music, but what if there's yeah. like microtonal singing in it? And I'm like, oh gosh, I don't know if this is for me, maybe. Sure. So it's it's something I'm still learning more about. And I, I, I would encourage, um, this is something I would want to ask my friend Anna Elder, who's very much into microtonal yes. music and is an absolute star. Um, in terms of approaching microtonal music or anything that has an unusual tuning system, mm-hmm. um, we we have um, in some ways an advantage as singers in that because we don't have buttons, it's yeah. all arbitrary <laughs> mind-based pitch stuff. Right. We don't have to like re-engineer our instrument or play with really wacko fingerings to try and yeah. make it work. Yep. Um, like I'm, I know your your duo partner Alan does so well. Yeah. Um, <laughs> He'll be but, happy to hear you say that. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, and that's the thing because instrumentalists that they they do they have to kind of alter things or do things in very strange ways mm-hmm. to make microtonal things happen. The payoff for them is once they know the fingering, they don't have to think what does the quarter tone up exactly sound like as much as we do? Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's another thing, kind of like with overtone singing, it's very much for me, like revamping how I listen, how mm-hmm. I hear mm-hmm. um, in terms of, I, I remember the first microtonal thing I started with was this Shelsey duo that I was handed mm-hmm. for a soundscape festival that I, I was going to be performing with Tony Arnold, like three days <laughs> the festival. That's not at all intimidating. <laughs> no. And I'm like, <laughs> I'm pretty sure but, I know which one you're talking about too, and so yeah. it's like, one of the, Zou, the first of the or it was the Zou duets. And, so, and those are intense. They are. What I like about them is they're more timbral play than anything else. So it's not really, as really. Nece- it's necessary, but it's not as crucial if the microtones aren't perfect. It's not like that Philippe Larue, yes, um, un lieu, un lieu a yeah. duo where all of a sudden you and the saxophone are like exactly together and then you're apart again. Exactly. Exactly. Um, but I spent a lot of time at a piano trying to sing like, 
like trying to get one, just one. Just one. I want to get just one microtone and then try and hear, can I hear, learning to hear the difference between the two because mm -hmm. it's something that's not common to us. We live, we are bathed in a piano based 12 tone equal temperament yep. world. Yep. That is, I mean, that, but we have ears that can hear and we can tune to things. Like if you're at 435 tuning or like, you know, slightly pitched under, you yep. can, it's not like your instrument completely dies. We just, no. have, we hear it slightly differently. Right. Right. So starting small mm -hmm. and also there are a lot of great apps now that have microtonal abilities to be able to hear, to have something that plays exactly your quarter tones to just get yeah. that in your ear. Yep. Yeah. Definitely. So that's another thing I'd recommend. I love it. Well, Liz, I'm, I'm so sad because like, how are we already towards the end of our time together? Like, this is, this is ridiculous. <laughs> like, I just need <laughs> to see you more, which is what I'm trying yeah. to say. <laughs> but as we kind of come to the end of this, I, we've talked about, I deeply believe in the power of curiosity. And I always like to wrap up our conversations together by asking my guests, my masterclass guests, what is something that you are deeply curious about right now? And this can be across your whole life. It doesn't have to be music or business or anything like that. Um, but what is something that you feel deeply curious about? Yeah, I, I've spent more time this semester talking with composers about notation. Mm. Um, and it's, it's something that I'm, getting more and more curious about the more I talk with people with, especially with other singers about it, it's like how notation shapes our interpretation of a piece. Yeah. That's big. Um, be and it's something I'm starting to kind of try and organize, um, um, organize things for like a wiki mm -hmm. because I, I'm not the only holder of this knowledge. No right. one person knows all of this. And there are things like, okay, how do we notate ingressive singing for some yeah. singers that there's one set of notation that they prefer for others or something entirely different. And we will argue about it forever. And that's why these <laughs> are great. Um, instead of saying this is the one way. Um, right. Right. At one point I was like, there needs to be a book like the, the wonderful orchestration texts that right. exist. The thing is the moment a book is published, it starts becoming obsolete mm -hmm. because then something else is now it, there's going to be things missing. So and access, you know, trying yeah. to find like where it's the, not very capitalist is, yeah. of me. <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> I appreciate your like you know mutual aid and and like uh, thinking about about a resource like this. <laughs> yeah, well, that's the thing. It's like you know, a book. Maybe that would be like I could put my name on a thing or money, mm -hmm. but I would much rather it be a, a conversation that is had that people have more access to because we spend so much time re-explaining the same concepts yeah. to, to composers when it's like, I promise you that wheel has probably already been invented. Yeah. And if yeah. it hasn't Bravo, like, yeah. <laughs> right. Well, and it, and being able to point people in the direction so that we start to codify certain things and you can always feel free. I think composers will always feel free to use whatever symbology or notation that really is the most efficient way that they want to communicate something. But right. then it's like IPA too, is having something that you can point to that says, we agree on these, these, these symbols equal right. these types of sounds. And for lots of vocal notation, just having something that you can point to is so helpful. Right. 
It, well, yeah. it is. And it's, it says, instead of me learning a new language, every time I learn it, every research, time. Um, it's something I don't have to expend effort into that so much as other facets of the piece. Exactly. Um, and I, you know, I've, I've talked to some folks that I know it, they're a wonderfully generous group. Um, I had a, a couple, a little email exchange with James Weeks of Exaudi Ensemble um, in the UK, and they they embrace new notations. They embrace different experiments in how to notate a sound, how to make a sound, etc. Which I'm like, that's very generous, and it's and it's art. You know, it's very artistic. It's very deeply moving. It's also not always efficient. Right. Right. So it's kind of like what what is the balance of brand new creation, trying something completely innovative or different and using tools that already exist yeah. in an efficient way. Definitely, definitely. Oh, well, I'm so excited as that project, you know, continues to evolve and however, however it happens, you know, please keep me in the loop and I'm, yeah. you know, I'll share it everywhere. So <laughs> anybody who's listening, we'll, yeah. we'll just always be sharing these kinds of things so that people can be involved and find out more. So yeah. Yeah. Well, Liz, sadly, our time, our time has come to an end. And I just wanted to thank you so, so much, like from the bottom of my heart, having these kinds of conversations just means the world to me. And I just really appreciate your, your sharing of your knowledge and sharing of your experience. And I think that that kind of, that kind of information just helps so many of us be like, I, yes, I'm thinking about things in new ways, or I feel, you know, feel welcomed into this field, into this community. So thank you from myself and from all of our studio class listeners. Thank you so much for listening to this masterclass episode on studio class. Hey, before you go, do you have a second? Will you take a screenshot of this episode and share it to Instagram with your takeaways? You can tag me there, at Mezzoinen. That's M-E-Z-Z-O-I-H-N-E-N. It makes a huge difference when you share this podcast with your friends. Or even strangers, really. So, with that in mind, I hope you'll rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening!